Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the morning of Thursday, November 17, 2022. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me at all, as always, is Glenn Hubbard, professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Doing very well, thanks. Glenn, I thought we could start by discussing what has clearly been the most important economic topic of the last year and a half or so. And of course, that's inflation and the Fed's response to it. So last week, we got a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on what had happened to the Consumer Price Index in October. And if you measure inflation as the annual percentage change from the same uh, month the year before, inflation was 7.8%, which is very high, but it was down a little bit from 8.2% in September. Same is true if you look at the core CPI, which of course excludes food and energy prices, that came in at 6.3% which is down a bit from the 6.7% in September. So both measures show that inflation had slowed a bit in October compared with September. Two related questions. Do we have enough information from the CPI or other data to conclude that we've gone through so-called peak inflation, as some commentators call it, and inflation will be declining from here? And then the related point, some economists and policymakers have been arguing that if inflation is already decreasing, and because the Fed has aggressively raised its target from the federal funds rate from effectively zero in March to a range of 3.75 to 4.0 right now, maybe it's time for the Fed to slow or possibly even stop its interest rate increases. What do you think? Well, those are great questions, Tony. In fact, they are questions that affect uh, whether we're gonna have a recession, uh, how many people need to lose their jobs to right the inflation ship, uh, the future of the stock market and interest rates, they're all about that, those pair of questions. The way I think about it is we've probably hit peak inflation. In other words, inflation's unlikely to go up from here, barring obviously uh, shocks that none of us could foresee today. That said, the Fed is quite a ways away from a target. The fact that inflation fell, depending on the measures, as you mentioned, into the mid-sevens or mid-sixes, that's a long, long way away from two. The day of the announcement last week, of course, the stock market took off. The market was thinking, well, the Fed won't have to work as hard. Going through the economics of it, this is, of course, about our favorite subject, supply and demand. And the supply features are going the way the Fed wants. Supply chain issues are getting better. Uh, it is also the case that we've seen probably peaks in rents and declines in rents will ultimately show up in lower rates of inflation. But the difficult part is getting all the way back to two. Resolving supply issues alone might get the Fed back to say four, but that is not of course where the chair uh, and his colleagues uh, tell us they want to be that is likely to require more aggressive tightening. And that job is made difficult when financial markets rebound because of course the Fed needs to see tighter financial conditions. 
And of course, the way to tighten financial conditions is to tighten financial conditions, and that the Fed is going to have to do. So could the Fed stop, not if it's going to be credible for its 2% inflation target? It's important to remember many years ago um, when Alan Greenspan was chair of the Federal Reserve, he did take his time after Paul Volcker to get inflation down from four to two, but Greenspan was drawing on an enormous wellspring of credibility from the Volcker Fed and from his own tenure. Uh, I mean, no disrespect, but Chair Powell doesn't really have that at the moment. So I think he does have to follow through with what he says. So the Fed will have to keep going, although expect voices inside the system to be talking about it. Second economic point that you and I talk about a lot on these is Milton Friedman's famous uh, statement about long and variable lags. You know, how much is enough? We don't really know, and it takes time. And I think that's what the nub is for the Fed. But to the question, will the Fed keep going? I think so. But what do you think? Yes, I think you're right. Uh, it's it's interesting. We're in a situation now that um, the Fed clearly didn't want to be in, because once inflation has gotten to this level, you are in a situation where it becomes a question of how high can you, how high do you need to raise the target for the pedal funds rate, and it's also a question of um, to what extent are people thinking that the current high rates are going to persist. In other words, have expectations changed? Because as we talk about in the textbook, if people begin to expect a given level of inflation, then that tends to get embedded in the economy. That people are looking at what wage increase they got. They compare it well, yeah, 4% wage increase seems good, but not if prices are going up 6%. And when people lend money, they want to take into account that the dollars are getting back or decreasing in value. So the I think Chair Powell and the other members of the um, FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, have been pretty clear that they want to make people realize that they are going to persist until they bring inflation down. They don't want people to begin thinking, oh, well, you know, the Fed's going to ease off and it'll be... Uh, It'll, it'll permanently be 4% or 5% because once that happens, then it's really tough to get back to that 2%. You, you raised another interesting point that um, what the Fed can do depends in part on what's going on in financial markets. Because as you mentioned, when these um, somewhat favorable, when the somewhat favorable inflation report came out, um, financial markets responded, as you mentioned, stock market jumped and interest rates fell. And that of course is a problem for the Fed because nobody really, other than a few financial firms, borrow and lend at the federal funds rate, the interest rate the Fed controls. What really matters are things like interest rates on 10 year treasury notes, mortgage interest rates and so on. The Fed can't directly control those. It can just send signals about what it intends to do about short term rates. And so we, we had seen that the interest rate on the 10-year treasury note go above 4% for the first time in quite a while, but then it's come back under 4%. And that has to make members of the FOMC uh, nervous because effectively what it means is that their policy is not being as effective, right? Because 
if those interest rates at which people really can borrow and lend, mortgage interest rates come down at the rate that corporations have to pay when they issue corporate bonds. And so if those come down, then you're not really slowing the economy enough to manage to um, decrease the inflation rate. Um, I guess one last point that, as you mentioned, with the long and variable lags, that we sometimes forget about that, although we, we talk about it at length in the book, that what the Fed is doing now, what it will do in its December meeting, um, that, those in, that that interest rate increase, assuming they do increase interest rates, as most people expect, it won't have its full effect for probably as long as a year, maybe more. So what they're doing at the end of two, 2022 is gonna be having its effect in 2023, maybe even into 2024. And that's kind of makes sense because if you're talking about you know, housing being a big, um, a big part of the way in which the Fed affects the economy, it takes a while before you know, the, there's, there's a backlog of houses that are already under contract and so on. So it takes a while before that um, that manages to, to slow down enough that it noticeably slows the economy. So I guess it's another way of saying that once you get into this kind of situation of high inflation rates and you have to start worrying about the, the, the lags and you have to start worrying about what's the feedback from financial markets and so on, um, you're not in good shape. <laughs> so it's probably well, exactly. another reason. And, you know, on that point, Tony, I'm reminded uh, of another Alan Greenspan uh, remark that, you know, rather than a specific inflation target, his argument was when people aren't talking about inflation, mm -hmm. it's not a problem. And I think he was right. And the problem is people are talking about inflation. And to your point, it takes a while to get that out of the system. And that really is the Fed's challenge. Absolutely. So maybe we can move on from uh, the Fed and sort of things that are central to the financial system to cryptocurrency, which is kind of out on the edges of the financial system. So we had a dramatic event last Friday, FTX, which is a, a cryptocurrency exchange, declared bankruptcy. And that was interesting for uh, a, a couple of reasons. One is that they had become fairly well known. They had TV commercials. Uh, they have had celebrities uh, endorsing them. They actually have their name on the arena that the Miami Heat uh, basketball team plays in. And of course, a, a cryptocurrency exchange is, a, a, is a, a place where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So you would open up an account if you wanted to do this and put money in your account and then that could be, you could use that uh, to, to buy and sell just as if you were selling commodities or financial futures or whatever. And um, why FTX collapsed is not 100% clear now. It's a very convoluted story, but it appears as if they were taking some of those funds that people had deposited in order to trade on the exchange and using them in a way that um, wasn't entirely proper, most likely, uh, to make loans and make investments and so on. So the, the, uh, their bankruptcy essentially has frozen all those funds. And it looks like they may be 8 billion or 15 billion, depending on who you read short. And that means that at the very least, the people who had deposited money there, and it, 
seems like it may have been more than a million uh, customers that they had. They no longer have access to their funds and who knows how long it will be before the bankruptcy resolves them. So a couple of questions. One is some people have said, in, including actually Janet Yellen, um, Secretary of the Treasury, that the collapse of FTX is um, an indication that the federal government should be doing more to regulate cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency exchanges and so on. The second thing is maybe the, the broader question we talked a little bit about before, maybe we can talk about again, which is, is there really a significant role in the financial system for cryptocurrencies? I mean, is there, do cryptocurrencies provide some services to people who wanna borrow or lend or invest that they can't find elsewhere in the financial system? Well, those are really great questions. The FTX events of the past uh, couple of weeks uh, have all the elements of a great scandal. It's not just FTX, it's SBF, the charismatic entrepreneur, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was not just a promoter for FTX, but really an avatar for crypto and its future, highly visible, you mentioned name on a stadium, but also highly visible in Washington and highly visible in political arguments about regulation or the lack thereof. It's also the issue that a lot of people will likely lose a lot of money. Nobody knows exactly how big the capital hole is, or as you say, what happened. But I think we can learn both too little and too much uh, from the FTX. Too little in the sense that I think the SEC uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission probably has some blame at its door here too. Normally, when you have an exchange, what's called custody, who actually holds the things, is typically in regulated financial institutions. So if you have a mutual fund or you, you own stock, somebody's holding that, a regulated bank or third party, that didn't seem to be the case here. As you, as you mentioned, securities were uh, transferred from uh, the use of FTX to the use of an investment vehicle called Alameda, that wouldn't seem consistent with custody arrangements that the SEC normally would approve. So in that sense, maybe we'd learn too little and, and probably greater regulatory oversight is needed. But I think we have to be careful not to learn too much. This isn't the kind of event that's going to sink the financial system the way the failure, let's say, of a major bank intermediary or even a major insurance company would do. Uh, here, you're talking about the evaporation of some people's money. That's very sad. But the contagion is likely to be limited to other crypto players and not to the financial system as a whole. And indeed, that has started to happen. Other crypto investors are finding their ultimate investors worried about their money. And again, better custody arrangements um, would, have, would have stopped that. To your bigger question, like why should we care, essentially? If you think about, as we talk about in the book, what's the financial system there for? Well, it's there to move money between savers and borrowers and to provide certain financial services that are valued by individuals, like risk sharing, uh, like liquidity, like information. There's probably not much of a way crypto expands the set for a, an actual commercial borrower or an actual saver. Uh, indeed, some of the 
crypto like Bitcoin that you mentioned have been used more for speculative investments and we're not short on other speculative uh, investments. Well, where I think crypto may get short shrift among policymakers and even some economists is underlying blockchain technology is incredibly useful uh, in payments and settlements. So I, I do expect we'll continue to see innovation in this area. Things like FTX or a storm cloud for that to be candid whenever people see a failure, but there's a real there there. So expect to see continued conversations of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs uh, and blockchain. But I think the notion of these fancy crypto exchanges and charismatic young entrepreneurs, that may get a second look, not just from the public, but from regulators. What's your thought? Yeah, I think that's very interesting. In fact, um, you know, the the one reaction to this has been, well, you know, anybody who is buying and selling cryptocurrencies, they knew they were in a very risky situation, and you know, if if, if, if they lose their money and things blow up, well, you know, they had to accept that risk. In this situation, because FTX had become so well known. And it had, you know, an advertisement on the Super Bowl, and it had various celebrities who apparently now are being sued by people who've lost money on FTX. Um, it had kind of crossed over so that you wouldn't say necessarily the average person was trading Bitcoin on uh, FTX, but it was maybe had moved beyond the kind of super sophisticated or super risk takers. Um, to the sort of um, average person, so that in that sense, um, you know, it, it, it maybe was a bigger deal than it otherwise would be. But I think you're right. I've seen some people saying, well, this is kind of like the failure of Lehman Brothers in 2008. But of course, that was a much bigger deal because it was right at the heart of the financial system and you know, had to do with short-term borrowing, the so-called repo market that's widely used and commercial paper that many businesses use to, to raise short-term funds and money market mutual funds who were big buyers of commercial paper. So when Lehman Brothers failed, it caused problems right at the center of the financial system so that it really did mean that it was difficult for many firms and some individuals to borrow and lend. But this is often the on the periphery, not really central. Though we are seeing, it's sort of interesting, we are seeing kind of the equivalent of a bank run because uh, other crypto, as you mentioned, other cryptocurrency sites are also having this problem. And there was that apparently what precipitated the, um, the bankruptcy of FTX was that some of the people who did have their funds deposited there had gotten nervous and kind of like in the old days in banking, they had removed their funds and it turned out that um, FTX didn't actually have nearly sufficient funds to be able to pay them back. So it's gonna be interesting going forward to see whether this does bring about some additional regulation and um, whether it sours a lot of people on cryptocurrencies or not. Um, we can turn maybe to a different topic now, something we haven't spent much time talking about in these podcasts, so maybe this is a good time. But in August, Congress and the Biden administration passed legislation uh, to slow climate change, right, by reducing emissions of carbon dioxide, which 
contribute to global warming. So included were government subsidies to firms and households to use renewable energy, such as rooftop solar panels, tax rebates for some buyers of certain electric vehicles, funds for utilities to develop power sources such as wind and solar that don't emit uh, carbon dioxide. So let me ask you the, the, the um, question economists typically ask about government policy, and that is, does it pass a cost-benefit test? That is to say that will the reductions that we might expect in carbon dioxide emissions, will the benefit from those be greater than what's being spent on this? It's going to be about $370 billion over 10 years. So does it uh, pass a, a cost-benefit test? And then related point is economists often talk about, as we do in the book, a carbon tax where you if you think of carbon dioxide emissions as an externality, meaning that it's causing damage to people who are not directly involved, then the classic economic response is that there should be a tax on it. So how do these measures, which do not include uh, in any significant way a carbon tax, how do they compare with uh, a, a plan that might have carbon taxes at its center? Well, great question. I, I think the carbon tax is the first best answer for the reasons that you mentioned. There's an externality. We know how to do this. We impose a tax. There's a problem. It's not going to happen, at least in the um, foreseeable future in the United States. Not because economists don't support it. I, I don't think I've met too many economists that don't support it, uh, but that political considerations uh, may point the other way in, in both political parties. Now, it doesn't mean you can throw up your hands. You can't when you have a problem as significant as, as climate change. And the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is where these provisions are, does attempt to move the needle. I worry that the costs per ton of, of removing carbon are very high. Uh, there are two economic considerations I think we can think about, even if the carbon tax isn't on the table. One is to make sure that we're really doing a good job in basic research on new technologies uh, and alternatives. That's where the federal government has a comparative advantage over business, as opposed to just subsidizing individual consumer items like an electric vehicle or, or, or a solar panel. The second is to remember that we have to keep engaging globally, which means whatever technological developments we advance in the United States, we need to make broadly available, um, not out of spirit of generosity, although that might be true too, but out of the notion that the uh, atmosphere doesn't really care where emissions come from. And we can't just have a program for the United States. So I think if we focus on technology and global, we can still improve the cost benefit test from where we are now, although, again, to sound like a broken economist record, the carbon place would have been a better place to start. I think if we stay fixated on that, though, we'll, we'll miss the chance for, for progress. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's probably no larger gap between what economists think is, should be at the center of a policy, namely taxing carbon. You may do other things, but that sort of seems essential and the likelihood that it will be implemented. I, I, I don't know if there's a vote, a, a single individual member of Congress who would vote for it, probably there aren't 10. Um, one thing that uh, I know my students are somewhat surprised to learn, we had a blog post on this, 
And that is that the US is, emits a relatively small fraction of total carbon dioxide emissions globally. And the, the estimate is maybe 14%. So even if the measures that were passed in August were fully implemented and they had their full effects over a period of years, the estimates are probably it would only reduce global emissions by something like one or 2%. So clearly that would by itself not have much impact. So as you say, unless you have a, a global approach, it's difficult to see how you manage to in fact rein in carbon emissions because it's really places like China and India where a lot of coal is still burned to generate electricity that, um, that the, the greater part of the emissions come from. So it becomes a more complex problem because although we like to think, well, if we can solve this problem in the US, we can reduce carbon emissions in the US, which is worth doing. But if we can do that, then we've, you know, we, we've licked the global problem when, you know, the arithmetic just doesn't allow us really to say that. Well, then I, I thought that we could close with something different um, as we approach the holiday season. Is there a holiday movie that you particularly like and would recommend, or is there a book that you'd recommend that people might want to uh, read over the winter break? Uh, yes and yes, and the holiday season is, is always appreciated. Uh, I'm very thankful as a person, and, and I know my family is for all our blessings uh, for Thanksgiving. And then obviously the upcoming winter break uh, offers wonderful opportunities too. To movies, I'm going to give the classic economist answer. It's a wonderful life. You, you Going even back to our FTX discussion and the bank run, you could learn an awful lot. Like, <laughs> all the way back to Mr. Potter as the yes. bank in It's a Wonderful Life. So I, I commend it. It's black and white, but it's really, really a great movie. Uh, on books, I'm fascinated by a couple of recent books about economics of Abraham Lincoln. That's not We don't usually think about Lincoln uh, in economics, but there's a new book out by uh, John Meacham called And There Was Light about Lincoln's thinking about broadly economic matters where he, he draws on wisdom, perhaps even unknowingly from Adam Smith and others, classical economic liberals about how to think about the economy. And also a book by Roger Lowenstein called Ways and Means that talks about Lincoln's economic policies ranging from the Homestead Act to land-grant colleges to the Transcontinental Rail, Railroad. I know to many people, those don't sound exciting, but to an economist, they're a lot of fun. And for anybody who loves economics, I commend them. What about you? Yeah, I'll certainly second your um, recommendation of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I think that if you're an instructor who is um, teaching about the, the problem with bank runs, um, you could hardly have a, a better a way of getting students to get the fundamentals of it than um, showing the scene where um, Jimmy Stewart as uh, George Bailey running the, effectively a bank was actually, I guess, a building and loan, um, has a bunch of, of, of depositors come in. It's the Great Depression. And so they're nervous about their money. And, and I, I forget the exact dialogue, but basically, you know, he has to say, well, Mrs. Smith, you know, we don't really have your money 
physically present in the bank. It was loaned out with other people's money to the Jones family and they to build their house. And, uh, and so it gets at the idea that we talk about in the textbook that the banks uh, are fundamentally unstable because they borrow short term, which is effectively what they're doing when they take in customers' deposits. And then they lend long term by, um, by making loans. And that means that um, the bank has only a small fraction of the money that's been deposited with it actually on hand. And of course, in the modern system, we have deposit insurance so that people are not as nervous as the people in It's a Wonderful Life were about getting their money back. They know that, that up to the, the limit, they'll get their money back. And then we have the Federal Reserve, which makes uh, serves as a lender of last resort if a bank can't get funds elsewhere, they can, in those circumstances, borrow from the Fed. Here's a little bit of, of trivia on It's a Wonderful Life that um, people may not know. And that is Jim Henson, the person behind the Muppets, when um, he, he was a great fan of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And when he became involved with the Sesame Street children's program, and he came up with a number of Muppet characters for that, um, two of them are Bert and Ernie, which Sesame Street fans will, will recognize. So where do you get those names? Well, it turns out in It's a Wonderful Life, there were two taxi cab drivers who were great friends of, um, of the Baileys and their names were Bert and Ernie. And that's where <laughs> Jim, Henson, Jim Henson got it. Um, one last little tip is, I know a lot of people will watch Christmas Carol and we actually have a discussion in the book of uh, Steve Landsberg's sort of um, uh, tongue-in-cheek discussion of whether Scrooge actually was better for the economy back when he was a miser or after he became a free spender. And um, there is a version of that that I like very much. It's a little bit harder to find. It was made as a, uh, a, a movie for network television several decades ago. It stars George C. Scott who maybe is best known for his uh, winning the Academy Award for Patton, playing General George Patton, the World War II general. But he plays Scrooge in this version of the Christmas Carol. And it's really very well done, both because he gives it an excellent performance. And even though it was made for television rather than for theatrical release, they do a very good job of reproducing Dickensian London uh, I guess they found some small town in, in England that, that looked as it, as it would have in the 19th century. Um, so if you're, if you're a fan of A Christmas Carol and you're looking for uh, uh, a particularly good version, see if you can track down the George C. Scott version. Okay, Chris, shall we? I think that's good. Yeah. yeah, George C. Scott is Scrooge in my book. That's in my brain. That's what he oh, looks so you've like. Seen that. I saw yeah. that when I was, you know, at a point. And uh, by the way, I think we could do a whole show on "It's a Wonderful Life." So. Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> it's great. That's good. I found the George C. Scott version too was a little more faithful to the book because it actually it's the only movie that clarifies what happened to uh, Scrooge's first love. Uh -huh. Oh, that was always that was always the missing piece for me. It's like all of those other movies, they show Scrooge making amends to people for right. things that happened in the past. But it, the one person missing was this woman. 
And so right. it wasn't until I, I read the, the actual short story and saw the George C. Scott one that I realized it's the George C. Scott one that, that covers that territory. You, you, you know, just one other uh, Christmas Carol anecdote. The original manuscript is in the Morgan Library in New York. And oh, usually at Christmas time, they'll display it, uh, you know, some pages under, under glass and you can take a look at it. And <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, I was there and I was looking at it and you can see, you know, it was obviously in longhand uh, and you can see this where um, Dickens would have scratched out something and, you know, written something. And the original name for Tiny Tim was Little Fred. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Yeah, and you can see where, you know, if Little Fred is scratched out and Tiny Tim is written on top of it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think Tiny Tim is better than... I think than marketing got involved, yeah. Marketing, yeah. you're right. <laughs> you had a good editor, right? His development editor said, I don't know, yeah. Little Fred doesn't quite <laughs> make it. Yeah, yeah thank you so much about Bert and Ernie. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. It's a little anecdote. So, shall I do the close then, or...? Yep, I think so. Okay. Well, I think we had a great discussion today, um, Glenn. We, we covered a lot of ground all the way down to Christmas movies. So just a reminder to listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes. If you'd like, you can subscribe and make this part of your podcast feed. Please also check our blog at HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com, Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And we have a Twitter account, which you can find by searching on the site for Hubbard O'Brien Economics. So thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We will see you next time.